Pharmacy Magazine's Talking Pharmacy podcast is brought to you by Aronix from Dr. Reddy's. Hello everyone and welcome to the Talking Pharmacy podcast where we look back at what's been happening in pharmacy over the last week or so. My name is Richard Thomas, I'm the editor of Pharmacy Magazine, and joining me on our newly sponsored pod this week are Rob Darricott, editor of P3 Pharmacy, Arthur Walsh, editor of our daily news service, Pharmacy Network News, and Neil Trainis, editor of Independent Community Pharmacist. Later in the pod, I talk to Victoria Steele, superintendent pharmacist at Lloyd's Pharmacy, about the company's response to the pandemic, those rumours about a possible sale, and the unacceptable side of Twitter. And it's pretty shocking stuff. But there's a lot to talk about and digest this week as well, so let's start with Good Week, Bad Week. Okay, so there's so much to squeeze into this week's pod. We're each just going to nominate either a good week or a bad week this time. So, Rob, let's start with you. Is it a good week or a bad week, and for whom? Richard, I'm going to go good week. I think it's a good week for Sir Simon Stevens, who's announced his departure as NHS Chief Executive in July. And uh, it's a good week because it's spawned a whole series of articles about why Sir Simon will be remembered, although possibly not remembered with much fondness by community pharmacy, um, given some of the things that have been put in his direction. Um, But, for instance... Uh, looking back over his career, as has appeared in a number of articles in the press this um, this week, um, it's you know hard to remember a time when he wasn't actually the chief executive of the NHS. He's been doing the job for just over seven years. Uh, he arrived um, in the middle of the um, coalition austerity. Uh, interesting, one of his first things that he did was to take a pay cut from his predecessor, which endeared him, I think, initially with to the service itself, uh, if it wasn't enough that he'd really been a kind of lifer in the NHS from joining as a management trainee 40-odd years ago, although obviously since he's, he's worked in and, out of, in and out of the NHS, including at a time in the private sector in the US. Um, but other things, other highlights, really. Uh, uh, another journalist, Alistair McLennan, who's the... Um, editor of the Health Service Journal has gone has, has actually said that Sir Simon has been the most important figure in HS history since Anaya and Bevin. Uh, and then he's gone on to explain why. I think some of the interesting things that he has been responsible for is certainly arguing the case for the NHS during the austerity um, government period when he forged an alliance with the Chancellor over the head of the Health Secretary Jeremy Hunt and got two successive five-year deals for the NHS in terms of funding out of the government, which is no mean feat. Um, He's generally described by pretty well everybody who has taken up their pen uh, or computer to write about him this week as um, a political operator par excellence. Um, Notably, when just before the budget in the autumn of 2017, he made a speech citing the claim on the side of the Brexit campaign battle bus that the EU would free up, leaving the EU would free up 350 million a week for the NHS and he asked for the money and the commitment to be honoured. Obviously that would have been seen as potentially risking his job but I think it's a sign of Sir Simon's um, 
acumen and the skill within the within the NHS that uh, he was making that sort of challenge from a position of considerable strength. Um, I think the long term legacy is more interesting because he has long argued that health and social care should be brought more closely together and has effectively encouraged um, the NHS and care leaders through the Developing Integrated Care Systems programme to ignore um, many of the Lansley reforms, which sort of forced them apart. Um, so that is going to play out over the next five years from here out as integrated care systems get their statutory backing. So his legacy will include that. But I think the most interesting thing and the most recent thing um, is the success of the um, the vaccine programme. Now, obviously, uh, political there are political considerations there and politicians are claiming credit for what has been a fantastic job well done. But it's interesting. In fact, Hugh Pym picks, up, picks this up in his piece on the BBC website that um, when it became clear that the only way through the pandemic really was the ro successful rollout of vaccinations, um, given the history of what had happened in the first few months of the pandemic, Downing Street was happy to let it be known that Sir Simon Stevens would be in charge uh, and therefore he would, if things had gone wrong, they were going to pin the blame for that on, on him. And um, in fact, the whole thing has been a, an amazing triumph for logistics. Um, and while I know that we've reported several times that community pharmacists involved in delivering the vaccinations in, in community pharmacy-led hubs, suggest that the um, delivery of vaccines from time to time has been a bit lumpy. Uh, we're at 30 odd million people vaccinated with the first one and don't, don't know, I didn't see the latest figure, but we're well over 10 million now vaccinated with both first doses. So um, so essentially that's an NHS triumph and um, probably a good time to leave, Richard. Yeah, interesting legacy, isn't it? A real heavy hitter. Uh, as you say, Rob, um, most important figure in NHS history since since an Iron Bevan. That's that's some claim. Rob, how do you think pharmacy will view Sir Simon Stevens? I think that's a really interesting question, actually, Richard. There was obviously the very often reported and repeated remark that he made in a was it a Commons committee or in front of an all party group where he referred to pharmacists doling out medicines, which is a quite an unfortunate phrase and obviously is so far away from the actual reality of of what the entirety of the dispensing process de delivers to patients but I think also there's an interesting story so uh, some years ago as people listening to this will know I was involved in an organization called Pharmacy Voice we had a meeting with Simon Stevens uh, it was towards the back end of 2016 I think it was and you know it's the way of these things and I think again for, for people listening it's often the way of these things that meetings between like officials they don't necessarily get reported you know there are meetings that take place that don't get reported for good reason and so there was, there was never any reporting of this meeting but we met him and we had uh, we were scheduled to have 45 minutes with him we had nearly nearly over an hour and a quarter uh, he kept shooing people away he very very engaged in the conversation we talked about a whole bunch of things um so from that I, I i think 
people like Simon Stevens at the very top of the NHS can be engaged with the right subject matter. And I mean, I've written about it often enough for people now. I bang on about it all the time. Context is vitally important. And so, you know, you can't assume that people running the NHS know everything there is to know about the thing that you know quite a lot about. So you spend quite a lot of time talking about the basics. But then also you've got to be in any kind of engagement, any kind of meeting like that, you've got to be listening as well. And there were certain things that he would have desperately liked community pharmacies help with. Um, and you know, to cut a long story short, when we came out of the meeting, um, we weren't able to engage the sort of people outside of our own organisation who we needed to engage to get the answers that he wanted to a couple of things that he would have liked. I don't think that kind of experience necessarily shows pharmacy in the right sort of light. Um, and I'm not sure that people didn't want to help because they didn't want to help. But I'll tell you one thing about that meeting. As a bizarre sort of postscript, um, we had a meeting with the chief executive of the NHS. Very, very few people knew we were having the meeting. Somebody who knew we were having the meeting actually submitted freedom of information requests about the meeting how it came about, who went to it. Uh, I had to submit emails between me and other parties organising the meeting. And, you know, at times that's what pharmacy can be like. And I don't think it necessarily helps if people aren't on the same page. So, you know, his legacy view from outside, I think, will be not a great one because he said some terrible things. I don't think we necessarily engaged with him at the, the level that we ought to engage with something like that. And there's a lesson for the future. You know, it's not just your agenda that's important in a meeting with somebody of significance. It's their agenda. And when you're looking for things that you might be able to do, or you, if you want something from them, then what can you do for them that might help build your case for you or help influence them that actually that the, you're somebody that they can do business with? And develop something that you want they'd be more interested in developing something you want so yeah a bit of a mixed picture and you know it's it's only through things like this that i get a chance to uh, to tell a few stories about the old days so thanks for that richard that's fair enough the doling out medicines comment was unfortunate but i guess looking at you know his broader legacy rob as you mentioned the the vaccine rollout um has gone well and he must take a, a lot of credit for that at least so he leaves in July. Um, I wonder who'll be next. Thanks for that, Rob. So, Arthur, let's move on to you. Uh, who's your good week or bad week? Uh, it's a good week, Richard. Um, I love it when we run an article that gets a strong reaction. So, for that reason, my good week goes to our anonymous columnist, Alexander Humphreys, who for the second month in a row has managed to excite all manner of opinion with his thoughts on the system according to which medicines are dispensed in England. Uh, his March column, uh, uh, PM's readers may remember, asked when a script is finally considered to have been dispensed, uh, told the tale of how his pharmacy received a script for a lot of expensive items that it turned out were meant for another pharmacy. Uh, our columnist ultimately declined to return the items to the spine on the basis that he had incurred significant ex expense in ordering them in the first place. Cue outrage, accusations of fraud, fervent praise, enthusiastic agreement, and just every shade of opinion in between. Uh, well, he's kind of done it again because the follow-up column uh in his follow-up column, he shares his views on, you know, what is wrong with you know, the overarching system. 
um, quote from the article, um, there's absolutely no incentive, incentive for anyone in NHS England to fix the broken system because it is unjustly benefiting from the status quo. Uh, again, another quote, um, every quarter the drug tariff changes and could bear no resemblance to the costs incurred at the time the prescription was actually dispensed. He talks about sort of uncollected prescriptions, you know, there, there'll be dozens of prescriptions that go uncollected every month and and the pharmacy you know, could bear their costs for those or patients who decide when they come to the pharmacy that they no longer want a particular medicine that's been been prescribed and um, just, the, just the cost that mounts up. Um, and he talks about um, the impact that a hub and spoke system could have in terms of um, it'll only add to their non-refundable costs. And he says the government will need to address this as uh, part of any proposed legal changes. Uh, he calls for a much more flexible system to ensure that contractors are paid fairly and accurately, which he says is um, impossible under the current system. So really, I, I thought it was a very, I mean, wherever you stand on it, it's a very sort of strong broadside and it goes into, um, uh, I thought, in you know, quite a short article, impressive detail on what is a very complex Byzantine uh, system of reimbursement that a lot of people, um, who, even even those who are very familiar with it and work with it, are struggle to get their head heads around. Uh, and again, it's got you know a good response from our readers. I would say more broadly positive than the last one, um, which, um, as I said, the previous article there was you know accusations of fraud and so on. Whereas I think this are, the, the responses so far seem to be more on the side of of our columnists. Um, one of whom went so far as to accuse patients of perpetrating fraud in conjunction with the NHS. So, um, and another says, you know, that uh, Mr. Humphreys is right. It's a baffling and unfair system. So, uh, yeah, I just, I really enjoyed it and I'm enjoying the reaction to it. Yeah, this resulted, like you say, Arthur, in a in a huge postbag, a virtual postbag. Um, surprising, really, but I hope how uh, people have got so engaged over this one piece. It's generated in... A huge amount of discussion. Um, Rob, have you been following this? What, what did you make of uh, the furore over these two columns? I, I, I mean, I think it's not unreasonable. I, I, I do wonder though. The, there's a sort of a why don't we try and fix it box for me with a lot of these things. It's not like these things that are being raised quite reasonably by um, by Mr. Humphreys are, are new. I mean, these these things have been issues going back years and years and years. And as as things get um, more focus on them, I think you know, obviously, given at the moment the financial situations that many pharmacies are facing, every penny counts. Um, it's a shame that pharmacy, f- from time to time, doesn't just sit down and say, "Do you know what? If we were writing the tariff, how would we write it?" and promote an alternative view about how these things could be dealt with that are seen to be, or that try to be fair to all, to all parties. Um, and yet we, we don't really seem to do that. You know, I think trade bodies in other sectors w- might create a code of good practice or, a, or a, at least a basis for having a conversation with the, with the powers that be on how things could be done better. But we, we seem to, you know, think, well, why don't they just come up with a way to fix it uh, without necessarily suggesting how it could be fixed and pushing it a little bit, you know, writing a code of practice. Do you know, that's such a, that's such a good point. And, and kind of monitoring the communications as we have it, like Arthur said, the tone has actually changed um, over the last few weeks. And some pharmacists have been coming in with their own 
suggestions. We will pull them together actually and and publish them later on about how you might fix the system. So I think pharmacists, some pharmacists are, are you know thinking quite hard about this, and and I think our our professional bodies need to do the same. I think what everyone agrees on. Um, as you said, Robin, and, and as our columnist has, has suggested, the dispensing payment system is just broken. It's just not fit for purpose. It doesn't work. And uh, an EPS, actually, if anything, has made things worse because of the way that, that nominations work. And, you know, for contractors to absorb all the cost, uh, having done all the work for medication that doesn't ever get collected for, for whatever reason, well, you know, that makes absolutely no sense to me. So, Thanks, Arthur. And, and Rob, that was a really interesting exchange and will be continued. We'll we'll see where, where this goes because um, there's clearly a lot of dissatisfaction with um, the way that the reimbursement system works at the moment. It's it's due for a change. OK, um, Neil, let's go to you then. Have you got a good week or a bad week and who's it for? Well, it's been a bad week. Oh, it's been a bad year, actually, but particularly a bad week for the physical and mental well-being of women working in the health and care sectors. This is a report that was released uh, by the NHS Confederation's Health and Care Women Leaders Network, um, and it found what it described as a significant rise in staff reporting poor health because of the pandemic. It doesn't mention, as far as I could tell, pharmacists specifically. Um, it mentions um, do- uh, doctors, nurses, managers, admin staff, and what it describes as allied health professionals. Um, over 80% of them said their job had, uh, had a negative impact on, 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 their, on their health, more than usual, on their emotional well-being. And the study was carried out in February and March, just after the peak of the virus in January. So it, it, it gives a list of um, reasons as to why uh, the health of women working in these sectors has been impacted. Various things, uh, why the strain that they've had to sort of endure um, and you know, increased, you know, increased demand for mental health support. Long COVID cases on the rise. Obviously, of course, the delivery of COVID vaccines um, and, and dealing with a huge backlog of patients who have not been able to be, be seen during the pandemic at various stages. So, <clears throat> it's it's quite a an eye-opening report. Um, it gives you a real sense of the strain that women working in these sectors have been under. Um, but also, as well as the mental aspect, it also reveals the, the physical aspect of. COVID on women as well. 65%, for example, said that uh, it had a, a negative impact on their physical well-being. I think it was a fair size of, uh, of, of um, study. 1,200 NHS staff took part. And what caught my eye, particularly in this report, was and um, what came out was that women uh, with long-term conditions, female workers with long-term conditions, were impacted harder than um, those who don't have long-term conditions, but they felt less safe sharing their concerns with managers. Um, now, it'd be nice to know what the picture... Uh, is within pharmacy on that on that score. Um, certainly something perhaps the, the PDA would jump all over. That seems to be one of their specialties. But uh, not good that um, women felt very uncertain, less safe, is how, they, how it's phrased, in sharing their concerns with managers. Um, the report calls on the government for more investment uh, because the worrying thing here is, of course, that if this isn't addressed, um, not just with women, men as well, but this report um, home done on women, you know, if it's not addressed, the the, the NHS could lose um, quite quite large numbers of staff. They could walk away from 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 the um, from their pr- professions. Uh, so um, it's I think the actual quote actually uses here is to head off a hemorrhaging of doctors, nurses, and other frontline staff. Um, so it wants more investment. They want the government to do more. The government has been very very focused in the last two three years, maybe slightly longer, on on, on mental health. We know how big this has become. 
in, in, in recent years. Um, but that's been the mental health of the public uh, at large, the general public. Not some, not, uh, I, I don't particularly feel, I don't know what you guys think, but I, maybe, there could be more done to sort of address the mental health needs of, you know, healthcare staff. Front, I, know, I know that the professions have their own respective um, uh, bodies. We have pharmacist support, of course, and, and there is access to help there. But I, I think more needs to be done. And clearly, according to this report, more needs to be done for women working in health and care sectors. Yeah, it was uh, it was an interesting report, wasn't it, Neil? I think, as you say, the concern here, um, I guess, is that, 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 and you mentioned it, Neil, unless the, the NHS workforce, you know, and I include community pharmacy in this, of course, you know, unless there's kind of support provided in the wake of COVID uh, um, for those who need it, as we, you know, we struggle to get back on our feet again, if you like, because everybody's exhausted. Um, and if that support isn't easily available, I suppose you could see this hemorrhaging, as you call it, of, of, of frontline workers going out of the system. And as most of the health and care workforce uh, is female, you know, you're going to need tailored support specifically for, for, for their needs too. So yeah, it's an interesting report and, and quite a worrying period, I think, um, in for us, we, yes, the, the pandemic is 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 hopefully receding into the background at least for the moment. But the the health service has a, a, a lot of recovering to do in terms of, of of continuity, and it's taken a toll on the mental health of 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 health workers and on pharmacy workers as well, people in pharmacy. So um, let's hope that support is available uh, for those who need it. Thanks, Neil. Um, for me, so for me, it's been I'm going to go for bad week for uh, dispensing doctors. Hispoo, we haven't had a dispensing doctors story for ages. I've, I've kind of missed them. Um, anyway, this is to do with a report from the Centre for Healthcare Economics at the University of York, uh, which our colleague Patrick Rice reported on in, in Pharmacy Network News. So the report noted that uh, doctor dispensing raises drug costs per patient by about 4%. And uh, gives rise to prescription patterns, and I quote, that are consistent with a profit motive and uh, unlikely to be explained by differences in the healthcare needs of their local patient populations. Well, goodness me, that's a pretty damning thing to say, isn't it? And um, Lots of reasons for this, the report gives. Uh, higher costs reflect more prescribing per patient, more expensive drugs being prescribed, including opioids, says the report. Uh, dispensing practices also prescribe smaller amounts as reimbursement is partly based on a fixed fee per prescription dis uh, on so, so again on a fixed fee per prescription dispense get it right um and it goes on in similar vein look i'm not uh, we don't want to over egg the pudding here um you know, the figures are quite small according to the report i aggregated over the 918 dispensing practices in in england in in 2018, which is when the period that the report was looking at, this amounts to uh, an additional expenditure of, of around £53 million a year. So not massive figures, but I thought it was quite interesting because the report didn't look at, at whether this additional expenditure results in health benefits, for instance, due to improved adherence, or whether it reduces travel time for patients or, or how even patients value the service. And, and that's always been pharmacy's beef, hasn't it, with with dispensing doctors and, and and Rob and I will remember these battles going on over the years, uh, and it used to get quite tasty um, between dispensing doctors and, and 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 rural pharmacies. But the point being that pharmaceutical service from dispensing doctors, pharmacy would say, is nowhere near comparable 
or as good. And it'd be interesting whether this report fans the flames in rural areas with an uneasy truce that's been uh, has been in place between pharmacy and dispensing doctors. That's existed for for some time now. So uh, it was a bit of a back to the future this report, just like the old days. Um, bad week for dispensing doctors. So now we're going to play an extract from an interview I did with Victoria Steele, Lloyd's Pharmacy's superintendent pharmacist. At the full interview will be released next week as part of our In Conversation with podcast series. We discussed lots of things. It was a very wide ranging chat and uh, Victoria couldn't have been more upfront and open, um, including we talked about the recent Twitter storm concerning the temporary park closures of some Lloyd's stores in Scotland. Now, Victoria addresses this fully in the interview, as you'll hear next week. But our conversation moved on to some terrible abuse that she's received on Twitter on the back of this and some other things too. Um, I think it's pretty shocking stuff, actually, as you'll hear in this extract. There was a real disappointment around uh, some of the behaviours that were were seen for for a number of reasons. Um, it's re- it's really interesting for me as a superintendent. I clearly need channels of communication to be to be two way and to be wide open between myself and frontline colleagues, whether they're employed or, or locums. But um, I also do do expect to be to be spoken to like a a fellow professional and it's really challenging if um inappropriate kind of leery jeery tones um are, are talked on on social on public social media platforms um i'm not going to engage on a personal level with in that. Um, I've received a few emails from a few locums and looked into anything that uh, they have sent me um, and I've agreed with some stuff and I not agreed with with other stuff but I've literally received three or four communications. Um, so the disappointment for me, um, apart from it's, it's just quite challenging on a personal level to deal with, I, I get really disappointed that it's it reflects poorly on the profession if that's how if that's how we think that's how business is done i worry about younger pharmacists seeing that behavior and thinking that's the appropriate way to get business done and i would hate you know how proud i am of the position that i now hold and how hard i've worked to get there and if if I thought anybody was looking at this and thinking, there's no way I want to receive that sort of um, kind of a- abuse, um, for, for want of a better word, um, I'd hate to think it put them off that. And to give you some context for anybody that may not have seen it, and this is not to do with um, the closures only yesterday on social media, I got called um, a child abuser, which is just, it's just shocking. It's been dealt with, but none of us go to work or have uh, formed a career for, for that sort of behaviour to happen in a 
public arena. So that was Victoria Steele from Lloyd's Pharmacy there and the unacceptable side of pharmacy Twitter. Um, Look, we've all seen some pretty horrendous stuff on social media in in recent times, especially around the time of RPS board elections, it seems, which is now, of course, for this year's uh, election. But um, what do you make of it all? Do do pharmacists need to clean up their act here? Um, Neil, what, what do you make of of pharmacists on social media. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I, I, I go back a few years, uh, three or four years ago, I spoke to a pharmacist who, who has a, tw- a Twitter account um, and he doesn't have a large following, but he's on Twitter. And it, it was interesting to hear, hear his view. He told me that he, you know, the only reason he has a Twitter account is because he goes on there to get things off his chest. Uh, he doesn't want to gripe or moan to, to his wife at home. He told me, he, 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 you know, he sees Twitter as a release valve almost. It gives him that kind of, cathartic release, um, which I found quite interesting. Uh, he doesn't go on there to find out what's happening. He just wants to sort of, uh, you know, blow his fuse a little bit. Um, and he, he, you know, he told me he, he hadn't experienced any unpleasantness on there or he had any run-ins with anybody on there. Uh, maybe his opinion would change if he, if he did. But I guess it was almost therapeutic for him. That, that's what I gauged from my, my chat with him. Twitter is a particular, particularly Twitter, you could argue this for all social media platforms, but Twitter is a strange beast, isn't it? Because you know, on the one hand, it can be very damaging to, to people's mental health. We, we, we know that. Um, it can get very toxic and very unpleasant. I'm, I myself have, on the one occasion, been on the receiving end of some unpleasantness. Um, for well, just being a journalist, basically. Um, but who knows the reasons why people get targeted for, for, for whatever on there. Um, but on the other hand, it, it, it can give you, a, as the pharmacist said a few years ago, it can give you a strange sort of, sense of a, a channel of communication if you like a, a way of simply telling people how how what you feel about things um my own view is i think there needs to be more done to to control what's become a bit of a raging ball on the loose um that's how i'd probably describe twitter uh twitter itself jack dorsey and 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 and, and all the executives there should, i think need to be doing a hell of a lot more to to control uh, uh, uh rein in some of what goes on on there not to impinge on freedom of speech, of course, but when things go too far, you've got people on, you've got people with Twitter accounts who are inciting racial hatred and, 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 and saying some appalling things. People with millions of followers as well. We're talking about huge people with, you know, well-known people on there saying some outrageous things. And then other people are getting reined in for, for very little in, in comparison. Uh, as far as pharmacy is concerned, um, I think bodies like the Royal Pharmaceutical Society uh, could be doing a lot more still could be doing a lot more to ensure that the behaviour of its members and its fellows is is not aggressive, is not uh, you know unpleasant on there. Um, and it, you know, with the elections going on at the moment uh, for the national pharmacy boards, it, it doesn't okay. It doesn't feel as if, uh, and I, you might disagree with this, uh, guys, but it doesn't feel to me like there's a hell of a lot of uh, toxicity um, compared with previous years. Um, so maybe there has been progress, but it wasn't all that long ago that Paul Bennett. Uh, the RPS chief executive, of course, released a mission statement in which he pledged to stop things like online bullying and, and aggression um, have to, from happening. Um, and if my memory serves me right, then it was a pretty impassioned um, pledge he, he made. So there still seems to be, it, it's, it hasn't gone away. Uh, I, you know, I've experienced a little bit myself not too long ago. So I think the RPS, because of their mission statement, should be doing more to particularly to control their, their members and fellows, and, uh, and more work needs to be done. Well, definitely. I mean, is it RPS? Yeah, but it, I would argue it's it's a 
it's a case for the regulator maybe to 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 look at it and let me let me just read something out to you that um i think this is a letter from um english pharmacy board chair claire anderson um and as i mentioned um at the start of this section the rps board elections taking place at the moment a lot of the hustings going on online and via social media and claire wrote how we choose to engage with others in our professional and personal lives is so important kindness consideration and acceptance all matter greatly uh, and here's the ringer. I've been greatly saddened by the negativity from some of our profession on social media. This reflects badly on all of us. We all need to think before we attempt to assassinate a colleague with our unkind words. So they're strong words indeed. Um, Rob, is this something that the regulator should be cracking down on? I'm not entirely sure what the regulator can do. I mean, in a world in which you can write something and immediately send it to thousands of people. Uh, what, what is any oversight body meant to do? Well, could uh, they not? Could they say you're not to have anonymized accounts, for instance? Well, that, yeah, they could do absolutely. But I mean, I think I, I'm not sure that the problem that we've got generally is confined to anonymized accounts. People seem quite happy to say some extraordinary things on Twitter. True. They wouldn't say to somebody if they were in, you know, seeing them face to face. Yeah, that's, extraordinary. That, that's absolutely I, I mean, true. I, I, you know, I, I'm doing less and less. I have to say on 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 Twitter, mainly confined to me worrying about the performance of my my team these days than than anything sensible professional. But I mean, the uh, I saw something the other day from a, a correspondent who wrote a piece analysing, you know, a, a football team's performance. And he got absolute dog's abuse from from people for, for using one particular word in that piece that they took violent objection to. Uh, and he has now come out and said, you know, I'm thinking of doing less and less and less by this medium because it's difficult to read and, and you can't get away from it. So I'm not sure what regulators can do other than, as you say, perhaps make an example out of out of somebody who goes too far but i think it's it's symptomatic to me of, of of the sort of general cheapening of the dialogue in society generally that we think we can get away with saying all sorts of stuff now just because we can and i'm not sure you know if you if you go on any when you're in publishing like we are uh we don't have a lot of um we don't you know have a lot of comments and 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 back and forth with readers but if you look at, at other publishers who do encourage that sort of thing that all they're all moderated you know you you can't just write stuff that's either factually incorrect or abusive on a, on an actual published platform so there is maybe something that governments can do because then these these social media platforms are very cute because they have managed to get themselves into a position where they're not held to, held to account like ordinary publishers are you know, I remember back in the day when we used to do a lot of letters, you know, we had to make sure that letters were honest, decent, truthful, uh, not libelous, because if we published them, then as the publisher, we would be held to account for that. The fact that we, you know, somebody else's words that we'd chosen to publish, it was still our problem. It is still our problem with, with advertising. But social media seems to be outside of that loop so that they're not responsible for publishing the random thoughts of other people, however aggressive or factually incorrect or 
malicious they are. And in a world where it's immediate, that's a serious problem. Yes, it it is a serious problem. And um, I'll, I'll come back to, to you in, in a second, but the, the thought occurs, I mean, we have all been, all of us, I think, have been on the end of some, you know, some some serious, uh, well, let's call it negativity from Twitter. And I, someone was telling me, a very senior person in the industry, who I won't say who that person was, but was on the receiving end of some um, some nasty, uh, well, abuse on social media, uh, tracked down the the, the person um, who was doling out this abuse and, and spoke to them personally, um, one-to-one, you know, away from the, from anything public on social social media platforms, and of course that person immediately, you know, crumpled into a heap. Basically, so there is a lot of the keyboard warrior behind of, behind all of this. But like you say, Rob, it is leading to a, a coarsening of, of public debate. Well, we're not really having a debate anymore, is it? It just becomes name calling. Uh, I don't know, Arthur. What 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 have you been? What do you make of all of this? Uh, I think I agree with Rob in terms of I'm quite skeptical about giving the GPHC. Uh, a greater role than say it would already have if somebody had you know committed a confirmed hate crime using social media and then they would have a role i mean obviously twitter can be very toxic um people seem to get a sort of sense of dark satisfaction out of saying things that they would like you say rob never say to the person who is you know standing in front of them it's very very strange um what it does to uh to the effect it has on human human psychology, I guess. But in terms of um, involving the GPHC in this, I would just be a little bit skeptical. I, I think um, uh, maybe I have sort of quite libertarian instincts about about free speech or something, and um, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure the GPHC really has a role beyond if somebody has you know committed a crime or or you know is really harassing people. Um, I'm not sure. I think I think I would also I'd be, I'd be I'd be curious to learn about, you know, whether um the other health regulators or just professional regulators, law law and so on, um, whether they um what stance they have in terms of because I guess if really you're talking about a role for the regulator, it's it's sort of fitness to practice, it's consequences. Is that you know, an area where you know, should, should pharmacists face fit, fitness to practice fitness to practice consequences for for saying sort of unsavory things online um i'm not sure well that was very interesting and i think probably we should bring this to an end now that's coming to the end of this week's podcast um so my thanks to to rob and neil and arthur and also our, our podcast sponsor aronix uh, from dr reddy's now, all the Talking Pharmacy podcasts are available to download from the Pharmacy Magazine website, pharmacymagazine.co.uk, or your usual podcast provider. Next week, we'll have for you the full interview with Victoria Steele. It's well worth listening to. But for now, from all of us, thanks very much for listening. Mm-hmm.